Ciao everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Superhuman Podcast. This is your host Renato Capasso and together with my co-host Dr. Apuzzo, we will share with you the latest biohacks and scientific discoveries that could transform a human into a superhuman with enhanced mental and physical performance. It all starts now. Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Superhuman Podcast. The upcoming episode is very, very exciting. I'm interviewing the greatest Emmy Killen and we're going to talk about sex biohacks. So you do not want to miss this episode. Please stay tuned and remember, if you haven't done so already, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review if you can. That would be very, very helpful. Enjoy this episode. So first of all, I just want to share my excitement to having you here at this brand new podcast, Superhuman Podcast. Uh, by the time of this recording, uh, I've done already a few recording, but um, I'm probably going to use you as a first recording on the podcast because... Okay. Because um, I'm very, very happy uh, for this. Uh, for me, you don't need the introduction. I knew, like, I'm a big fan of you. I know you worked in, uh, you were an ER doctor. You went through a very stressful period. Like, you had, like, three kids in two years. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. And then you totally <laughs> your life. Uh, shift your life from, from that. And you basically cured yourself. I know that you went through a period of very... Uh, chronic stress, you were not sleeping a lot, it was uh, an intense period for you, but probably for those who don't know you, and they should know you, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I mean, you, you totally got it right. You, I was an ER doctor of 10 years, um, and then I ended up transitioning over to kind of integrative and regenerative medicine about eight years ago uh, because of a lot of stress I was having, as well as just I kept seeing patients that would come to the emergency room with like the same kinds of problems, like just chronic stress, fatigue, they were eating bad, they weren't exercising, they felt miserable, and it was leading to a lot of chronic, chronic diseases. So um, I just started realizing that in order to help them and help myself, I needed to kind of learn a whole bunch of new stuff <laughs> that, hadn't, that hadn't been taught to me in medical school or residency. So I started becoming interested in, in integrative medicine and sort of anti-aging medicine, uh, regenerative medicine, which is stem cell medicine. And so now I do a combination of those things. I focus heavily on, um, on skin health and sexual health, hormone health, and also just general longevity. So it's, uh, it's very different from the ER. <laughs> yeah, definitely. How long ago was that, if you don't mind me asking? That was, um, gosh, at this point, about seven. It's, it's been about eight years since I started in this field, but part of that time I was still doing ER. But it's been about seven years since I really just stopped emergency medicine and went at this, you know, full bore. Wow. Congratulations. Because I think eight years ago, I don't know, at least from this side of the world, but eight years ago, uh, everything that was regenerative medicine, medicine, PRP, stem cell, and so on, of course, it was happening already. It's been around for a while. But um, not everyone knew that path. Uh, so congratulations for taking that path at such an early uh, stage. Uh, and now I know you have your clinic, right, about regenerative medicine. 
I do. So I work, I have two different clinics, actually. One of my clinics is more of an integrative medicine clinic. We do a lot of hormones and nutritional and lifestyle medicine. Um, and then my other office that I work at is the stem cell clinics where we do these kind of big stem cell cases. Um, and I have a partner there who does all the musculoskeletal injections, like the joint injection. And I do the skin, the hair, and the sexual injection. So we do these kind of big cases um, at that office. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So I've called you here so, uh, to talk. I know your area specialization are hormones, sex, and skin. That's how you advertise on your profile as well. But I'd like to talk today uh, about sex. It's a great topic to talk with at 6 a.m. in the morning in Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I think it's a great topic anytime. <laughs> it is. It is. It is definitely uh, anytime. But I think it's a great topic also because uh, my perception is that some people tend to separate the two things. Health on one side, sex on the other side even though I think the two things should be mm -hmm. um, uh, connected. What's your, for, for overall health, what's your view about that? Am I right, do you reckon? Yeah, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I, sexual health is dependent on overall health, first of all. So you have to have health really in all major sort of six components of health uh, to, in order to have you know, really solid sexual health. So that's everything from physical health to mental and emotional health, spiritual health, um, you know, environmental health, social health, all of those things come together uh, perfectly at, and they meet in the middle and that's where sexual health is the best. Um, and on the flip side, if you are sexually healthy, if you have good sexual relationships, we know from all kinds of data that you're also more likely to have improvements in general health. So improvements in everything from blood pressure and sleeping to less stress, less depression, less anxiety. Um, we know that people who have uh, more active sex lives seem to have less uh, cognitive decline as they get older. So they seem to have better memory. Uh, and there's even some statistics looking at overall mortality and people who are sexually active um, and happy seem to have uh, about a 50% reduction in 10-year uh, mortality. That was in men, so we don't know about women. But there's actually quite a few health benefits to sex as well. So it really goes both ways. Did you say 50% less mortality rate? Yeah, there was one a big kind of study that was done uh, in men that looked at men over a 10-year period, and men that were having sex at least one or, one or two times a week uh, had a 50% reduction in mortality rate compared to men who were not. Now, there are other things to look at, obviously. Obviously, men who are able to have sex twice a week or once a week, they're probably healthier. They probably have better blood flow. Blood flow. You know, their vascular system is probably uh, in better shape, so they're less likely to have heart attacks and strokes and atherosclerosis and things like that. So, uh, so there's a lot of things to look at with that. It's, it's uh, not super cut and dry, but I think it's still interesting as a point. Wow, that's, uh, that's great. And um, in terms of, uh, you reckon, in terms of, so you were part of my question of uh, how much is enough sex, uh, like twice a week. I mean, every day would be better, but uh, <laughs> um, but let's say twice a week is like hitting the spot. No? And for me, it's like a, a sort of necessity, right? If you don't sleep, you feel it in terms of your health and that goes for um uh, for sex as well what's uh, what's um I'll, i'm very interested to know what happened chemically inside our body when that happened with a certain frequency uh-huh 
So, um, so a number of things happen. So first of all, there's a number of hormonal releases, you know, when you have sex, when you have orgasm, even just the closeness, you get, you get a release of oxytocin, which is, you know, the sort of, that makes you feel uh, close to someone else. It makes you feel bonded to them. Uh, you get a release of uh, serotonin and dopamine. So you get this kind of euphoria. Um, you get a lot of hormones uh, released as well. Testosterone and DHEA and some of the other hormones can be released during that. So all of these things play into the sort of wellness and happiness that can come from these uh, relationships. Uh, as far as the amount that, you know, that it's necessary, most studies that look at this are looking at, you know, one to two times a week uh, as being beneficial, but obviously everyone is different. And I think it's more important that, uh, that people just think about, you know, that, 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 that they're in meaningful relationships, relationships that, that make them happy and that the frequency that they're doing it is making them happy uh, versus looking at like an actual number. Okay. That's, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. So, uh, oxy, what did you say was uh, the hormone that gets released? Uh, so oxy, oxytocin is a big one. Oxytocin is, uh, it's the sort of the, the bonding hormone. It's the one that, you know, actually when, like when mothers and babies, you know, they bond the first time, oxytocin is one of the main hormones that makes you bond with your baby. And that same hormone is released during sex. So that's why oftentimes after sex, people feel so much closer to each other, the, you know, to their partner. Um, it's why it's harder to be mad at your partner right afterwards um, in the, you know, the hours or, or even day afterwards, because you still feel so bonded to them. Uh, of course, that goes away after time, after over time, if you, if you don't continue to, to release that hormone. Oh, that's great. And what do you reckon? So even though we know, um, I mean, is is well known now that is, uh, you know, an uh, healthy habit, especially if it's done, uh, you know, with a person who you are truly connected, um, and so on and so forth. But what do you reckon are the main reason that um, stopped the some part of the population to uh, having enough um, having having enough sex? Do you reckon it's only a problem, uh, like a physical problem, is it a psychological problem, a mix of both? I think it's a mix of both. I mean, certainly there's the, there's the psychological, emotional, sort of mental part. You know, people kind of become bored with each other sometimes if they've been in a long-term relationship, they're stressed out with other things. They've got, you know, they're managing too many things. The stress is a big component. I always tell people, you know, your, your mind is actually your biggest sex organ. So your sex starts with your brain. And if you're stressed out or you're, you're in a bad relationship or, you know, you're thinking about your, your hundred point to-do list, then, then you're not going to be really interested in having sex. Um, once you get past the mental part, then there are the physical barriers. So, you know, certainly things with, with age, we, we start to have uh, more problems getting blood to go to the areas that we need them to go, just because the blood vessels get filled up with plaque, with atherosclerosis. Um, and of course, that's happening with both men and women, but especially, you know, really both sexes. Uh, and so if you can't get the blood there, then you can't have erections, you can't, the women can't have, you know, similar uh, lubrication, things like that. Um, the other thing that happens with age is that both men and women start to produce less nitric oxide and nitric oxide is the main hormone that opens up the blood vessels um, and lets the blood get into the area like get into the, the sexual organs and so if you don't have a lot of nitric oxide um, then you can't get erections and you can't get you know things uh, filled with blood so there's a lot of things that happen with age that can be problematic <laughs> for sexual health Oh, okay. So thank you for your answer. I, I've got a couple of questions more regarding this. I, so let's, um, if I leave them together, so let's stress physical and, uh, you know, including the physical category, like lower levels of natural 
dioxide. Uh, I'll start with stress, which I think is, a, is, a, is an important component of you know, every aspect of life, not just uh, um, uh, sex. So uh, my view, like my very simplified view is that you kind of overproduce constantly um, cortisol levels, uh, basically when you, especially when you have chronic uh, stress. Um, right. Is there anything that people can, you know, stress happens and life happens. Is there anything that people can do to reduce the amount of stress during stressful periods of life? Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of things that, you know, that people can do. And I think that we're always, all of us are always learning as we go, what works the best for us. Um, to me, you know, stress is not so much about what's happening externally. It's about how you're, how you react to whatever's happening in the world. So that's what actual stress is. It's how you react to the world around you. Um, so, you know, everything from meditation and breath work to gratitude journaling to even, you know, for me, it's, I love going on walks out in the mountains. So that's my, you know, or I love doing yoga. So those are kind of my, my ways, that's where my mind kind of turns off and I'm able to be very present. And we know, of course, there's just, I mean, there's so much literature out there now that's, that shows us that chronic stress, chronic high cortisol, um, chronic adrenaline, all of these things are so bad for our health. And so there, you know, whatever works for you, but taking the time to do something that's kind of turns your brain off so that you can start to regulate that better is really important. Oh, that's great. And I guess uh, sleep could be at least for me, like you said, um, of course, working in most, but at least for me, I've noticed if I can at least hit the sleep right, uh, not just in terms of length of hours, but in terms of like deep sleep, uh, I can see that that uh -huh. helps a lot. I may be a bit weird in terms of that. Uh, I've been doing literally blood tests like one week apart, and the change of cortisol level, just having like a week of sleep, uh, it was uh, incredible. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, a lot of your hormones are made at night. So if you're not sleeping well, everything from growth hormone to testosterone, of course, the cortisol curve, the cortisol changes throughout the day and the night, as you know. Um, but if you're waking up a lot at night, your cortisol curve is shifting. And so you're not getting the right balance of cortisol during the day. Uh, so sleep is huge for, for health, and including sexual health. Because if, if you don't sleep, you're not making all those hormones and you feel miserable. And you know, then you really don't want to have sex. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Is, there, is there a time, uh, because I know um, 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. is uh, supposed to be like a time slot, which apparently is magic for production of hormone. Is that a myth of certain hormones? Is that a myth? Or, uh, I don't know the exact time, actually. I know it's overnight, and you have to go through a certain number of cycles of, of deep sleep to make a lot of the hormones. But that's a good question. I'm not sure exactly the best time. I know that um, like testosterone horm uh, levels are going to be highest in the morning, usually. So you know, if you, if you a lot of men uh, will be interested in having sex in the morning because testosterone levels are high when they first wake up, um, and so that's something that it, it's probably true for women too. But I don't know exactly what time of night those levels peak. Okay, no problem. Uh, so higher testosterone in the morning, that explains a couple of things. Uh, <laughs> right. So I want to tackle into uh, physical because you said something very interesting, like, uh, you know, you talked about, of course, when you think about physical, we think about blood flow. Um, and I kind of want to speak about both men and women here. So blood flow, they get probably um, in... It's not optimal because of plaque, did you say, in the, in the, in the vessel? 
is there anything first of all that people can do to to prevent that and um and if they already reached that point when they they have a plaque formation in the in the blood vessels is there anything that they can do uh to kind of reverse uh that process yeah absolutely i mean all of the things that that we know of as sort of being healthy lifestyle choices are most of them are going to help you prevent plaque formation so that's things like keeping your blood pressure low keeping your the sugar in your diet low and that includes the simple carbohydrates so really keeping your blood sugar down um, not smoking smoking is horrible for your sex life um, uh, not smoking you know making sure your cholesterol and your lipids are your ratios are good um, keeping your stress down anything that's going to cause inflammation is going to increase your risk of getting plaque formation in your blood vessels so so, uh, so really focusing on that piece is important. And the same is true once, once you have plaque. I mean, really, you know, the same kinds of things you want. If you haven't been doing it your whole life, you can always change. And you there's the potential to reverse some of that plaque formation. Um, there are some drugs and things out there as well that can, that can partially reverse the uh, plaque formation. Statins can, some, can do a little bit. Growth hormone can, can uh, help reverse plaque formation. Um, oh. But really the best things to do are just to make good lifestyle choices exercise you know eat right meditate sleep i mean all the things that we know are good for us are good for our entire bodies including our sexual organs uh, that's that's, uh, that's did you say growth hormone helps yeah uh, human growth hormone has been shown to uh to, to sometimes in some people reverse or you know partially reverse uh some of the plaque formation in blood vessels it's not used for that it's it's one of those things that it's it's highly regulated at least in the united states it's not used for for that purpose uh very frequently but it has a lot of benefits including things like helping to you know reverse osteoporosis and uh, and things like that help with blood sugar but we're still pretty careful about how we use it because it's uh it's highly regulated yeah, there is um, one one thing that I, uh, you know, I do a lot of self-experimentation on, on myself. I still deal with, uh, uh, you know, being cautious and uh, and really, I don't do crazy stuff. I just do uh, simple stuff. But I know one thing that when it comes to hormones, I'll never mess my hormones up without the help of a professional because you can do like very, like very serious damage. Uh, for growth hormone, um, so I, I'm, you know, it's highly regulated, of course, and um, plus you need the, if you want to go through that path, you need a physician and, uh, and help from, an, from a person who is expert for that. Uh, if I kind of want to hack that, but a more of a natural way, do you reckon then do it? Because I know that if you do intermittent fasting and then you do, for example, high intensity even training uh, on a fasting state, mm -hmm. and of spike that growth hormone uh, level. Uh, would that do the job, do you reckon, or, or is it not enough for... Uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely going to be helpful. I would, I would say you're totally right. I, you're, you don't want to be just experimenting with, you know, like ordering random chemicals or peptides or growth hormone through the mail or, you know, those kinds of things are, can be dangerous. You don't know what you're getting and you want to have someone who's working with you to, to make sure you're checking the levels frequently. But absolutely, things like fasted exercise, things like, um, you know, making sure you're sleeping well, all of these kinds of hacks can absolutely increase growth hormone and, and, are, and can help to uh, de you know, reverse some of the damage that you might have done with you know, a lifetime of, of uh, less ideal choices. 
yeah, it's true. never too it's never too late to start you know it's one of those things that certainly you could have lived your whole life and and made bad choices but it's, as long as you're still alive there's still time to change what you're doing no that's great and you said something uh, very right like is a uh, if you if something was caused from a lifetime of choices is uh you know it's not going to take one or two days to to fix it it's going to take um it's going to take a while i have another question about uh natural dioxide uh so basically before this interview i've done a bit of research but also in terms um i've done a research not just on papers i also done research in terms of what what people are asking on forums on Quora, Reddit, like everywhere. Like, uh -huh. and um, I saw some um, patterns in terms of answers and some patterns in terms of questions. But I was trying to pick those questions that are not often asked. Um, so here's my question. Sorry. So for nitrous dioxide, of course, it dilates the vein, and uh, so the uh, the purpose of that that there is more blood flow. Uh, coming not just into the area that we need, but also you know uh, overall in the body. Uh, right. And I think there are certain things that you can do to increase that, um, either beet root or you know food with nitrates or supplement to a citrulline, for example. Um, mm -hmm. What happening for those people who kind of wanna increase their? Uh, let's assume they have plaque formation and uh, and pure circulation, but they also have and low blood pressure uh, is that the way uh, like what do you reckon they should do people who have already low blood pressure low mm. blood pressure but they're okay. not a good situation system so i mean obviously everyone should go see their doctor and not just take my advice if they have low blood pressure but for most most of the people still doing lifestyle uh things like things that increase nitric oxide exercise increases it you know being out in the sun and getting some uh, or like red light therapy can increase nitric oxide um getting making sure you're getting the right foods so things like green leafy vegetables beets you know, even pomegranate dark chocolate all of those can get made into the health you know all into the nitric oxide in your body um, and all of those things are going to be you know generally safe for people uh, as long as they're fit to do those things and even if you have normal blood pressure they're not going to decrease your blood pressure more uh, nitric oxide if you if you take the drug form of it you can decrease your night your, your blood pressure too much but if you're just using lifestyle diet thing and exercise then it's not usually going to be a problem your body will regulate that okay that's amazing um no for me personally i take um L-citrulline, but it's a pre-workout or beetroot powder, uh -huh. and uh, I, I can tell you, I can when I do my workouts, I can really literally feel the difference, like right away. Like after, if, even if I take that one hour before a workout, it's just amazing uh, the difference. Yeah, yeah. That's connected with the blood, for sure. Yes, we connected with the blood flow. Um, so we talked about yeah. we talked about a couple of physical problems like infl inflammations and plaques. Uh, we talk about nitrous dioxide. Um, so, other people, uh, other reasons. So, in my list of things that that I wrote, that uh, things that might stop people having uh, having sex, and then we stop with the male, and then we go to the female part, uh, can be also premature ejac ejaculation. And I was uh, very confused. So, in my research that I've done, um, um, I could not find. So, I found a lot of information regarding what we just talked about, but I found very li little and um, 
nearly opposite information regarding this topic. What's your mm. view? What's your view about it? I have my view about this, but of course, I want to hear your view. Yeah, um, yeah. Premature ejaculation. Uh, you know, there's a there's a couple of different things. Oftentimes, that's a behavioral, a learned behavior that can be reversed through uh, working with a sex therapist or a psychologist or someone who is able to kind of go back and and help to reverse that behavior. Um, because you know, essentially, it's it's not usually a physiologic problem. It's usually a behavioral problem. Um, there are some the tricks that we you know we'll use. We'll try using like numbing creams, for instance which is not super fun because then, it's, then things are more numb than you want them to be, but that can help uh, help to delay things a little bit. Um, even putting patients on uh, like SSRI antidepressants can sometimes be used for this reason because those medications are associated, that's like your, you know, things like Prozac, Zoloft, those kind of medications, those are associated with the, with delayed ejaculation. So for some patients that are that have premature ejaculation, those medications can be helpful. Helpful, but really, I think that the best thing for those people are to go and talk to um, a qualified sex therapist or psych, you know psychologist and start working through the behavior itself and and going at it from that approach versus you know supplying random you know topical things or taking drugs for it. Yeah, definitely. Because I mentioned. The the number of cream if you don't apply it correctly or with the correct quantity and if you kind of like do it yourself you can plus if it's topical it will be you know it will go it will affect also kind of your partner i think uh, <laughs> yeah if you don't wash it off it would affect your partner <laughs> and then no one's having as much fun because you won't feel anything <laughs> uh, all right so it's, it's more my understanding is that it's more of a psychological issue Usually, it's I mean, it's not always, and certainly you should go. They should, you know, if, if someone has that problem, they should go see their doctor and get evaluated and make sure there's nothing physically wrong. But uh, but quite a number of people who have who have this, you know, it's 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 a learned behavior that they just need to kind of work through how to reverse it. Okay, interesting. Thank you. Can I call you Amy? Makes me feel. Yeah, like of course, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alrighty. So, what for? Okay, and that we, I guess we covered the like of causes for for men, like stress, physical and psychological reasons. Um, I guess it reflects, but in a different way, the same things for women. What stops women having uh, enough sex? Like the same kind of reasons, so there are some different reasons. I mean, there are similar reasons, I think, for sure. With women, it's, you know, with men, erectile dysfunction is the most common, you know, problem that, that, that people complain about, that men complain about. For women, with women who have sexual problems, it could be anything from lack of, uh, lack of libido or lack of sex drive, difficulties getting aroused, uh, problems have reaching orgasm, or pain. Um, so those are kind of the four main things that we talk about with women, the four sort of types of sexual dysfunction. And of course, a lot of women will have, you know, some combination of all of those things. So the reasons, you know, could be very, it's, are very different. Like, is it, you know, is it a hormonal problem? Is it, is it a, the person has just had a baby and their hormones are all messed up, or they're going through uh, kind of early menopause, or their, their stress is causing hormones to be in, out of balance, because we know that stress affects your hormones, um, just like it affects everything else um certainly that's a big part of it um and then you know if you get past all the kind of mental emotional spiritual stuff then you have the physical and the physical thing problems are, are similar to men the blood flow is important um as well uh just like it is in men so there's you want to kind of evaluate women you know in a similar way but they are very different from men in some ways okay and um i also read that uh, the, there are um so some women have a problem with 
I'm sorry about my pronunciation with these extra I access if I can't pronounce that correctly. With lubrication. Lubrication, yes. Lubrication, that one, sorry. That's all right. <laughs> uh, some women have a problem with that. Is that correct with, uh, connected with blood flow or is it? It is, yeah, it is, it's connected. I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it, but one of the reasons is lack of blood flow because the blood, what happens is the blood flow to that area, part of the blood, uh, not the blood itself, but essentially the part of the fluid gets pushed out of the blood vessels. And that is the, that's the fluid that is, becomes the, the vaginal lubricant. Um, other things that happen is you can get changes in the, in the sugar, uh, the sugar concentration in the vagina that can happen with hormones or infections um, or age um, as women age and they lose when you start to lose estrogen then the the vagina becomes uh, it starts to thin out just like your skin does when you lose estrogen so the skin becomes thin um, you lose collagen you lose moisture and um, and things can become more painful and you have you know, lack of lubrication so lack of you know, lubrication can be from anything from infection to age and hormone related uh, problems uh, to lack of blood flow it could be a number of different things Okay, very interesting. So lack of estrogen as well. Does it apply for men as well? Uh, connected to lower estrogen levels and kind of skin quality or is it a totally different story? Uh, it's not quite the same as men. Men do have some estrogen, but they're much more reliant on testosterone. The estrogen piece is uh, is more important for women, but it does it does you do men do need some estrogen. Um, that's one of the things I always tell people. You know, for men who are taking testosterone, you know, you don't want to in general you don't want to block your uh, estrogen formation. Like you don't want to get on the like the aromatase inhibitors or the medications that block making estrogen from testosterone in general you don't want to be on those because men need estrogen too for their bone their bones for cardiovascular health for um for you know some of the same kinds of things that women need it for so it is it, testosterone is more important for men but estrogen is also important perfect i just found out what i was can you hear me better now yeah i can hear you ah perfect amazing it, just, that's a little better yeah i just found out that i select the wrong microphone i just found that now <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Amy. So, um, all right. So we talked about the problems, and um, I'll just before passing to possible solutions and things to do, which you already tackled. Uh, what, what's what's about um, libido? Uh, lack. I mean, lack of libido. And uh, uh, I'll let you answer first, and then I'm probably gonna. Have, I already know I'm gonna have another question on top of that. But okay. <laughs> Um, so libido, you know, it can be a lot from a lot of different issues. If your lack of sex, lack of interest in sex, uh, classically, it's a hormonal issue. That's what people always talk about. So, you know, it's in, in men, oftentimes it's low testosterone. Um, in women, it can be it can be low testosterone or estrogen or just imbalances with estrogen and testosterone and progesterone. Um, so hormones are definitely a piece of it, but it's not the whole story. Uh, there's so many other things to consider, like we talked about before. I mean, really, you know, what's your relationship like? Do you like like your partner like are you you are you guys have are you are you bored are you did you not like each other like that's important um yeah. you know what else is going on in your life uh, how much stress do you have etc so libido is pretty complicated in that it's not just a single thing you have to look at but starting with something like hormones and just general health status can be i think a good starting point thank you is that so the, for hormones of course the, the first one that comes to mind is uh, um testosterone uh, can you have a scenario with high testosterone, but still low levels of libido? Do you reckon? Are there other yeah. ones involved? 
Um, testosterone is the main hormone, but you can absolutely still have low libido. It's not, it's not as simple as you have to have just testosterone and that fixes the problem. Um, you know, I have a lot of male patients who are on testosterone and they, their levels are, are good and high. Um, their free testosterone is also nice and high, which is something you want to look at. Um, and you know, everything is pretty much in balance, but they still have low libido. And sometimes we don't know why it is because you can't measure you can't measure, you know, sort of emotional health. You can't measure mental health um, in the same way that you can measure the hormones. So it's it's oftentimes more complex than that. But I will say that men who have low testosterone, mm -hmm. most of them that I've seen have low libido. Those things tend to go pretty hand in hand. Perfect. It, it does the same apply for women as well in terms of hormones? Or is it yeah, I mean, sort of. Yeah, you certainly low testosterone in women has, has been tied to low libido. Um, but in the same way, I see women who have normal testosterone, high testosterone, you know, and they can and they still have low libido. So it's, I think in women especially, it's really hard to, it's hard to figure out the cause of it um, because there's so many things that can be, can cause problems and can be, you know, can cause that lack of interest. Perfect. Okay. Thank you very much. So in, um, so let's, um, I know you already, um, you already talked about some possible, uh, solution for, uh, like if, if people, both men and women have any problem with that, uh, there are possible solution. I like to categorize those in solution that people can do starting from, uh, tomorrow, if more of a, um, more of, uh, I don't want to use the word cheap because, but more on an economical side of right. the view and more yep. of the higher hand, uh, you know, of course, most of them will be more effective, but yeah, I like to separate the two things, things that yeah. people can do, yep. uh, can try with low risk by themselves. Of course, always consult a physician because, you know, like we said at the beginning is uh, a sex, if you have a sex issue, uh, is probably a health an overall health issue. So always kind of consult with a physician. But if people kind of want to yes. try to do uh, things by themselves uh, on a safe way, is there anything that they can do? Yes. Um, so exercise every day. Get a little bit of sun um, most days, if possible. Vitamin D is really important for the formation of testosterone. Mm -hmm. It's important for sort of a sense of well-being, um, things like that. Um, you know, make sure you're getting enough green leafy vegetables and beets, and avoiding antiseptic mouthwash is really important uh, because the yeah. uh, when you t when you take mouthwash, it kills the bacteria in your mouth that are important and necessary to actually make nitric oxide from food. So you can be eating all the green leafy vegetables and all the beets that you want to, but if you're using like Listerine or other antiseptic mouthwashes every day, then your body can't make nitric oxide from those foods. So avoid antiseptic mouthwashes unless, you know, once a week is fine, but don't do it every day. Um, avoid the acid blocking medications, if possible, talk to your doctor first, but things uh, that are stopping the acid production in your stomach, that's also stopping you from being able to make nitric oxide from food. So the same, kind of like your mouth bacteria, you also need stomach acid to make that. Um, eating a healthy diet, not smoking, you know, uh, those kind of things that we talk about all the time are, are simple things you can do. Um, getting enough protein and branched chain amino acids is important for the hormone uh, production. Uh, most people don't have a problem with it, but make sure you're getting enough um, good of uh, the good fatty acids um, so you have enough cholesterol to make all of your hormones. Um, you know, keeping your blood pressure under control, keeping your cholesterol in the good range, you know, things like that, like normal healthy lifestyle stuff goes a long way.
That's great. I love that you mentioned about the bacteria in your mouth. I'm a big fan of microbiome, skin, by anything, uh -huh. because we, uh, I don't know, we live in a world where, not anymore, fortunately, you know, um, people are waking up, thanks to people like you, and, uh, but, you know, there is still a big part of the population that they think bacteria, bang, is good. Kill all bacteria are going to be healthier. And that's kind right. of the way I think medicine, some part of the medicine has, go, has followed for a, you know, for a long period of time, antibiotics right. and so on. I'm not saying all the antibiotics are bad. Sometimes they're necessary. And thanks God we have them because, you know, thanks to antibiotics, we cured a lot of um, uh, diseases. However, the overuse of those um, can have some consequences because you basically destroy your microbiome. And right. we know a lot about our microbiome now inside your inside our belly, uh, but uh, people are not talking still enough about the bacteria that you can have in your skin and in your mouth. To be honest, right. bacteria in your mouth that can help with the production and the absorption of certain nutrients is very new for me. So that's why I find it very, very interesting. Is there, so is there anything, so if I damage the, uh, let's say, overuse of, you know, Listerine and, uh, you know, mouthwash, if I overdo it and I kind of want to reverse that and get my good bacteria back mm -hmm. in my mouth, is there anything um, I can do? For, for yeah, it? it's actually really interesting. So your, your body is this amazing organism, right? Um, yeah. If you start to, so if you stop using mouthwash and then you start to eat the kinds of foods that the high nitrate foods, like the beets, the arugula, spinach, kale, you know, the green leafy vegetables, yes. you start eating a lot of those foods, your, your body will repopulate with the bacteria that it needs to, to be able to break down those foods into nitric oxide. So you'll start to actually have those bacteria back in your mouth again. Um, so it's, you don't have to do anything except eat the right foods and stop doing the things that kill the bacteria and your body will take care of it. That's great. And um, does the same apply with your skin microbiome? Do you reckon like skin biome or is it totally different? Sorry. Yeah. In general, I mean, as long, you know, you don't want to be, your, your skin is much more um, acidic than your body. So you're, you're, you have what's called the acid mantle over your skin. So your skin pH is uh, between about four and a half and six, which is lower than your body, which is, you know, 7.4. Um, so you can mess up that acid mantle by, um, by doing different things, by putting different, you know, the wrong kinds of lotions on or things like that, um, or taking antibiotics can mess up some of it. But usually if you if you just stop whatever you're doing wrong, your body will fix itself. It's usually something that it's, it's, it's very intelligent that way. Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So, okay. So we covered the part of the things that people can do starting from tomorrow, basically. And, you know, we covered the base a little bit with every, that does apply with everything in life, right? And uh, sometimes we always look for the quick fix and the quick hack. Uh, my view of that is that you should cover the basics first and then yeah. the, the hacks are for biohacks let's go that way are to optimize um, your uh, right. performance or just to be used in very or more extreme circumstances um, now I want to talk about the other end of things that people can do with the with the help of a, of a physician of, a, of or a professional what's out there that people can do 
um, oh, there's some pretty cool stuff out there now, and a lot of people don't know it. So, so for men, for erectile dysfunction or uh, or just kind of less function than they used to have, uh, one of my favorite technologies is called shockwave therapy or low intensity extracorporeal shockwave therapy is kind of the long name of it. Um, in the United States, there's a there's a, a company called Gainswave that does this. That's that's pretty popular. But basically, uh, we're, you're just essentially applying. The doctor will do this usually to you, um, and you're applying um, high intensity sound wave to the penis and the sound waves go in um, and they start they, they create a signal that tells your body that your body needs to heal itself so you get this recruitment of stem cells you get more blood flow more blood vessels forming you get local nitric oxide so you get more blood flow coming in and um, and it's, it's a pretty effective usually people will do six to twelve treatments um, and you know they'll in those treatments about 70 to 80% or so of men will have significant improvements in erectile function. Uh, so I do that with a lot of my patients now. It's completely safe, which is my favorite thing about it. Um, and that's pretty easy. You could use, you could do it in women as well, although it hasn't been as well studied for women, but I use it for women also. So shockwave therapy oh, is one thing. Um, using the regenerative uh, factors like the, the platelet-rich plasma or in some countries, depending on where you are, stem cells or growth factors or exosomes or things like that, which is one of the things I do in my practice, um, those can be effective. They're a lot more, uh, they're newer, they're more sort of investigational, but there are, there's some interesting studies out there that have shown that these things injected into both men and women into the genitalia, you can have increases in blood flow, collagen production, you know, improvements in um, even nerve regeneration in animal studies, uh, and, and can sometimes reverse erectile dysfunction um, in men or, uh, or sexual problems in women. So that's something that I also will do in my practice to try to help to really regenerate those tissues. You reckon, um, I love PRP, by the way, the one that you that you mentioned for anything, for joints, for yeah. skin, for hair, um, um, because it works, and I think it's very low risk, right? Because you extract your own blood, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's very low risk as long as you have uh, someone who knows how to inject. Uh, it's very low, sorry, I, low risk. I was, I had actually, I put a video up today on on Instagram because I I previously did a video on YouTube that showed me injecting my own face with PRP, and I was kind of talking my way through it, and I got okay. all these people commenting saying, "Hey, I want to make my own PRP at home and inject myself. How do you do oh, it?" No. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, all of these people, and I was so I, you know, I told them I was like, you, this is not something that you do like in your garage at home. Like you have to know what you're doing. But as long as you have someone who knows what they're doing, then it's a very safe procedure. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely don't do PRP in your uh, garage. Uh, right. <laughs> there's a lot of some infection, and uh, I mean, I don't know. You can inject the wrong spots, and you definitely don't want to inject in the wrong spots. I think. Yeah. but even if he's on your face and you're like no <laughs> it's the, the actual prp is very safe you just don't want you just yeah. have to know the anatomy you want to make sure that you're not you know, the needle itself could do damage you can in introduce infections um you know so there's some things like that that you have to know how to how to do but but yes in general prp has been around for over 30 years and at this point has been shown to be very safe for anything from you know joint pain to like you said face hair um other skin things wound healing is a big one for prp so it's used for everything now that's great is there anything for so for prp um, forgive me like the probably stupid question but for prp and uh, shockwave uh, therapy which is this gains wave in uh, uh, in us but uh, 
we don't have it here in Australia, or I think in Europe, I'm not sure. Is, is there a sort of um, certification or guarantee? Like, of course, when you choose that to go on a procedure, procedure like this, especially for PRP, you want to be sure that the person uh, or the physician is treating you is, uh, is kind of, he knows what he's, what he's doing. And 99% of the people know what, that, what they're doing, otherwise they will not do it in the first place. But is that a sort of um, official, uh, I don't know, for the, um, yeah, official entity that says, okay, this person is certified and they went to a course to do that? Or... Um, there's there's a lot of courses uh, for for PRP especially there's there I teach some courses there's you know there's tons of courses um, all over the world and so but there's not as far as I know there's not like a single this is the one certification that you should get like it's not like you know like for instance when I was an emergency medicine doctor I had to go through three years of residency and then I got you know I became board certified in emergency medicine and so everyone knew I was properly trained there's not really that yet for regenerative medicine, which includes PRP and stem cells, and even the shockwave therapy um, is considered to be regenerative. Uh, so a lot of this, we're just learning kind of as we go, like we're learning from other doctors, we're taking courses, we're going to conferences, um, but it's so, it's so new that a lot of these things are not being taught yet in uh, residency programs and training programs like that. Amazing. And I hope you don't mind me the question for, uh, uh, stem cell uh why is so um why is that just in certain countries why there is these things about uh because i read the studies and i'm very excited about this field and why is it not possible to find it like everywhere why is it so difficult that's a great question. <laughs> That's a really good question. It is very difficult, even in the United States. It's still something that, you know, there's a, a lawsuit going on right now that's, that's going to become very important. Um, but, in, in, you know, unless that lawsuit changes something, we have to phase out using um, fat-derived stem cells by November of this year. So that means that, you know, I can't take your stem cells from your fat and put them back in your body somewhere else. Um, even though they're your cells, we can't use them as your cells. They are, you know, that our government is, it has said essentially that once you take that, those cells out, that, that, that it becomes a drug and any drug has to be regulated by our FDA so that they, that you can't put that drug back in unless you've gone through, you know, years and years of studies with the FDA. Um, so it's a, uh, it's really difficult. I think that part of what happened is when stem cells first came out, um, you know, back in the eighties, they were, they were the embryonic stem cells that people were talking about. And, you know, people got worried about using embryos, which I totally understand. There was the ethical concerns. And, um, and then they also learned that the embryonic stem cells are not always safe. They can sometimes form tumors or cause other problems. So there was a big backlash against, you know, against stem cells from the, from the start because they were talking about embryonic stem cells. But the stem cells we're talking about now don't come from an embryo. They come from either the patient's own stem cells from like their patient's own bone marrow or the patient's own fat or from like, uh, like, um, umbilical cord stem cells. So from like a healthy baby, the placenta gets donated and stem cells get get uh, taken or, or created from that, that tissue. So now the ethical issues are really not there and the safety issues are really not there either because these procedures have been shown to be incredibly safe, um, safer than taking aspirin, honestly. But the concern I think is that they're still um, not completely proven to be effective for every single thing they're being used for. 
So that's the issue is we still have a lot to learn about the best way to use them, the quantity needed, you know, um, things like that, much more so than the actual safety of the procedures. That's a shame because um, I think that's um, encouraged people to go in other countries to get this treatment done. And I mean, some people really might really need that treatment for health purposes and some countries are not well regulated. So yeah. in my opinion, it actually increases the risk of um, uh, side effects of going through a procedure that is not as safe. It's such a shame. Is that a, um, do stem cells age? as well as we like do they lose uh effectiveness as we age they do yeah so they um as you get older you you still have stem cells but sometimes you don't have quite as many in certain areas and then they're not as um robust so they don't, they don't have the same amount or ability to signal that other that other more youthful stem cells do so it is something that uh can become a problem with aging and that's you know it totally makes sense if you think about it if you like my eight-year-old like 10 year well 10 year old son he, he cuts his ankle he cuts his knee like every three days he falls he slices his knee open i don't know why he can't walk properly but he always hurts himself <laughs> Um, but I'm amazed at how quickly he heals. Like he'll have like a deep gash and like three days later, it's totally healed up and, you know, looks beautiful. Like it's crazy. Whereas me, you know, I had something cut off my knee and it's like, I'm 44, but it's taken like months and it still looks awful. Like it's just, those are stem cells. It's, it's lack of stem cells, lack of your stem cells to work as well as they did when you were 10. And of course, as you, as I get older and as anyone gets older, that's going to become even more of a problem. So everything from wound healing um, to ability, you know, being able to repair your knee pain or your, or your face wrinkles, all of that is because you don't have uh, active stem cells as you get older. Wow. So let's, uh, for, for those who don't know, I mean, most people know nowadays what's the same cell, but it's like, let me describe it very simply. It's a cell that can be turned into anything with certain growth factor and, and, uh, and so on. And um, it can repair tissue and regenerate uh, tissues. Is there a way? Okay, so if I'm in um, the US or in, in any country where the stem cell treatment is not allowed, and I kind of want to... Um, do the job uh, internally. I don't mean injecting my own stem cells. No, I right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that, please. And don't do that with any injection. Injection. But if I kind of wanna, is there a way to um, optimize, increase the concentrations on stem cell or stem cells within my body through epigenetic yeah. or any external factors? Is that yeah, absolutely. Um, intermittent fasting has been shown to increase stem cells. Um, mm -hmm. Hyperbaric oxygen treatments can increase stem cells. Certain types of exercising, including like Tai Chi, for some reason has been studied and has been shown to increase stem cell production. Um, so there are actually quite a number of lifestyle fact, you know, things that you can do. And again, a lot of it just comes back to being healthy, exercising, eating well, you know, reducing stress, all of those kind of things. But particularly intermittent fasting, hyperbaric oxygen are two of the sort of more high-tech things that you can increase um, you know, system-wide stem cells to try to help them be more active. Hyperbaric, so intermittent fasting, I got that tick. Tai Chi, I don't have that, I can do that tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to do Tai Chi, but I'm, I'm going to have to start learning, I think. Is it, yeah, it's one of the things on the list for some reason. <laughs> uh, I think um, I'll be a funny person to watch if I do Tai Chi. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> hyperbaric uh, oxygen chamber, did you say? Oh, hyperbaric uh -huh. uh, um, what's that? 
Uh, hyperbaric oxygen is, you know, again, you have to go to a doctor for that. You can't just do it at home, but essentially it's um, increasing the oxygen in your, in your blood. And it's a, it's a, it's a chamber that you get into and it's been used for a long time for like wound healing and things like that. But it's, it's been shown to increase uh, stem cell production. So like in my clinic in, uh, in Park City, Utah, we're, we're actually purchasing a hyperbaric oxygen chamber for our patients that we do stem cell procedures on. So we can put them in the chamber, you know, before or after their procedure to help uh, either increase stem cells or, you know, improve their healing afterwards because those, so the, the stem cells and the, and the hyperbaric oxygen go so well together. Wow, that's very interesting. That's very interesting chamber. I'll check that out. I'll see if uh, uh, they have some in Australia. Um, um, the, the other, uh, first of all, before I forget, so I didn't know your, I know a lot about you, but I didn't know your age. You're 44. You don't look like 44 at all. <laughs> Thank you. I, th I appreciate that, but yes, I am. <laughs> but, but, but you don't look, and let me tell you something, okay? And I say this, who knows me? I say this all the times, okay? Especially when it comes, and sorry, I don't want to look bad by saying this, but especially when it comes to doctor, doctors and uh, people who talk about longevity, they kind of need to, okay, so... <laughs> You know, so I look and I can tell you're doing a good job from, from how you look like. And that's not just, you know, that's applied with everyone. If, I don't know, it's like saying, it's like saying, hey, doctor, I don't have hair. How can I do? And the doctor is bald. Is, you know, is, is not going to have. Uh, right, right. Maybe I'm wrong. So here, I think it can go two ways. Either a person knows exactly what he's talking about, but it's just don't take action to, you know, to his knowledge. It's just don't practice what this person knows or not, or they're just doing something wrong. So I think, um, uh, anyway, uh, hopefully it makes sense what I'm trying to say. But No, it does. It's like you don't want to go to a dentist who has really bad teeth, right? Like you, you, you want to go to someone who you feel like is taking care of themselves in the way that they want to take care of you. Uh, and I, I appreciate that. Yes, I get that. Perfect. And um, I just want to tackle, and sorry, and then I know we got just a few minutes, and then I let you go, but... It just got my curiosity. It's a little bit off topic, but oxygen. Um, I go see the on oxygen chamber, and I was thinking about something else. I was thinking about hair, and I tell you why I was thinking about hair. Um, and this is connected with sex and so on. I know a lot of people. So uh, people who are losing hair, they take certain drugs, and they can have certain side effects, like sexual side effects, especially if you take uh, not sure. Oh, finasteride. Yes. Right. Um, um, which is a drug that uh, down regulate the production of DHT, which is uh, believed to be one of the causes of uh, uh, male pattern baldness. Yes. Uh, how is that? Wh what's your view on wh why that can cause erectile, erectile, erectile dysfunction to some men and not to others? Is it uh or something else? So, yeah, so, so what, what um, finasteride does, which is also called Propecia in the United States, mm -hmm. is it decreases the uh, ability of the enzyme 5-alpha reductase to convert testosterone into DHT, like you said. So you make less DHT. Mm -hmm. um, DHT is a strong, uh, it's a strong hormone, and it's actually important for sexual function. Um, why some men respond and, and have erectile dysfunction with finasteride, I'm not sure, but I will say that it's only about 2 to 3% of men who take low-dose finasteride, like the kind you'd take for hair loss, 2 to 3% of men will have ED 
uh, from that. So the vast majority of men do not have any problems at all, no matter what you read on the internet. Um, about, so I have, I have a lot of patients who take finasteride. They've been on it for many years. They have no problems. But if you don't want to take it um, systemically, there are some topical options. So there are now, uh, in, you know, at least here in the U.S., and I'm sure you can do it there as well, there's some compounded medications or you know, creams that you, that you can spray on your hair or that, uh, like serums that you would just apply to your hair that have finasteride in them, but that doesn't get absorbed systemically as much. And so you don't get the side effects that you would get with taking a pill. Oh, nice. Is, is there okay for maybe in the show notes or later on, you can run me some of the products that people can use? Yeah, the, um, the, I can just tell you there's a pharmacy called Master Farm here in the United States that does that makes uh, some of these products. I don't know what the rules are in other countries because I know, you know the, the compounded pharmacies are, are going to be very different in different countries, but there are topical finasterides available at least here. Okay, that's great. Uh, now, I'll tell you why there was the, my connection there for, uh, from the hyperbaric oxygen chamber because I think the, in the scalp, the overproduction of DHT is connected by the low oxygen level, low, low blood flow, consequently low oxygen levels. And uh, mm -hmm. I think in, in, an, in, a, in an ambient with lower oxygen, testosterone tends to convert more into uh, DHT. Uh, but that's just a theory that I have. So that, that's why I got the weird connection ah. there. Yeah, no, that's 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 a good that's a good thought. Um, yeah, and for some reason I don't know what, why, but some men are just are really sensitive to having lower DHT, and some men are not, and I'm not really sure why that is. Um, yeah, it would be interesting. I think a, a good part of it would be, uh, to be honest with you, I think a psychological, considering all the hype that there is beyond the drug and so on, a yeah. good part of it can be psychological. Like I read it, oh, there is a problem. I may have a problem now. I have a right. problem. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's probably, I, I think that does cause problems occasionally, but I also have patients who come to see me and they said, you know, I was on, I was on finasteride four years ago and I've had ED since that time and it's because of the finasteride. And just from a physiologic standpoint, that doesn't really make sense because the, the medication is only blocking that DHT formation for a period of days or maybe a week or two max it's not lasting four years so i definitely think that there's a a psychological component to that and people are, are reading and learning about this and they're like oh well, that's my problem correct otherwise i would just take a couple of pills and then i stop taking it and my hands grow back yeah exactly <laughs> exactly uh emmy I, I want to thank you very much for you know having taken the time for uh doing this i know you are extremely busy and uh so i really really appreciate the fact that you have uh taken the time to do this um so again thank you very much okay before i go where people can uh, find you so I'm pretty active on Instagram. It's at Dr. Amy B. Killen, uh, which is K-I-L-L-E-N. So I would love for you to follow me. I also do uh, Facebook, same name, Dr. Amy B. Killen, or my website is Dr. A is a, what is my website? Dr. Amy Killen, MD. Gosh, I should know that. <laughs> I have several websites. That's one of them, but I'll send you the actual one. Um, so, and I have a couple other websites as well, but Instagram's an easy way to find me. And people will oftentimes send me messages and I'll refer them to the right website after that. That's great. I mean, thank you very much. I let you go because I know you are in your practice now and uh, <laughs> and I'm going to go as well. But thank You're you. welcome. It was lovely meeting you and thank you for uh, being so well informed on the topics.
Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey there. Thanks for listening. Before we conclude, I'd like you to remind you something very, very important. This episode, as well as this podcast in general, is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Listeners should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have. Please, 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 if you have any medical condition, consult your physician first. Disclaimer given, I would love for you to subscribe to this podcast and to leave me a review. That will help me a lot. We're just starting out. We have already a lot of great interviews down the line, which you don't want to miss. So hit the subscribe button so you will get notification for the next exciting episode. I'll see you next time.